the homeschool enthusiast. This is the podcast inspiring a generation of parents and students to escape public school prisons, develop a passion for lifelong learning, and promote family as the center of an education. At the homeschool enthusiast, we believe the best learning happens outside a classroom and that every student has unlimited God-given potential. And here's your host, entrepreneur and proud homeschool graduate, Noah Tetzner. Today, I'll be speaking with Andrew Pudua, founder and director of the Institute for Excellence in Writing and a father of seven. He is a graduate of the Talent Education Institute in Japan and holds a certificate of child brain development from the Institutes of Achievement of Human Potential in Philadelphia as well. Mr. Pudua, thank you so much for coming on the show. It is a pleasure to be with you, Noah. Mr. Pudua, I'm so excited to be speaking with you today. As many of you know, I am currently in my senior year of high school as a homeschooler and actually used IEW, Institute for Excellence in Writing, when I was a student of classical conversations as part of their essentials program quite a few years ago now. But I understand that you were a homeschooling dad and you would have begun homeschooling probably during a time when perhaps it wasn't as accessible and mainstream as it is now. When and what made you want to homeschool your children? Well, um, our two oldest had been in a very small kind of, you know, cottage school, Montessori school, kind of like a just a big homeschool with a dozen kids, only not in the same family, uh, different ages. And it was a very good environment. And we enjoyed, um, you know, being part of that. But then uh, that school closed down. And so we started to look for other options and uh, had a home business going at the time and uh, thought, well, you know, let's try the homeschooling thing and the kids can help out in the business. And uh, if, you know, if it doesn't work, then we'll look for a, a different school. Um, things were a little tight, so private school was not a great option at the time. And uh, public school was also not a great option at the time. And we didn't have a lot of uh, knowledge of other families homeschooling, but uh, we got in and gradually discovered a few people. Um, the um, the oldest girls actually did go to uh, private school for a year here and a year there, uh, but by the time uh, the third one came along, we were pretty much you know third one became school age. We were pretty much uh, I would say set on the homeschooling path. And if I may ask, what year did you begin homeschooling? Well. Yeah, that would have been approximately 1990 in Montana. Wow, that's remarkable. Well, reflecting on the years you've been a homeschooling dad and, and maybe even the years following the graduation of your children, um, I mean, to reflect on such a journey is something quite remarkable. But do you have any favorite or memorable moments? Well, I think, you know, looking back uh, with you know, all my children are grown. Youngest one was married last August. And what's kind of notable is to realize that some of the things that you, you know, you worry about, like, oh no, we're behind in math, or oh no, you know, this test score isn't good, or oh no, we didn't finish that science book during that school year. Those things are pretty much irrelevant in the big picture of, you know, who the kids grow up and become. And uh, some of the things that seemed maybe just, you know, fun or uh, something to do uh, that would be 
supplemental rather than core ended up being perhaps one of the most formative experiences. I would say among those, I would put um, drama. We, we did musical theater and then um, speech and debate, which you'd usually kind of consider, I guess, extracurricular. But I think uh, the children who were involved in those would look back and say, no, those were those are the most important things, experiences we had growing up. Mm, that's awesome. When you first, so what, what, how did you really discover homeschooling? You know, I mean, you said you started in around 1990, uh, you decided to bring your kids home, but how did you really sort of discover this home education concept? Or was this something that you had been aware of for some time before you started? Well, um, uh, Doug Wilson wrote a book called Recovering the Lost Tools of Learning, which uh, had just come out around then. It was the story of Logos School in Moscow, Idaho, and how they created a classical Christian school. And uh, of course, this was kind of a case where, wow, that's great. Let's let's move to that city and go to that school, uh, which we actually did for one of our children. Uh, but being a private school, you know, it's hard to afford all of your children, and uh, a lot of uh, some of the homeschoolers that, that I had come in contact with uh, through uh, starting the Institute for Excellence in Writing uh, were very excited about this idea of a classical approach and doing essentially the, that curriculum uh, in the homeschool. Uh, but uh, we did move to Moscow, Idaho. My second oldest daughter went to that school for uh, two and a half years. Uh, but that was kind of the push to get into, uh, you know, homeschooling and classical curriculum in a more serious way. And then in 1999, um, I had been teaching violin and kinder music to support the family, but the Institute for Excellence in Writing uh, was becoming uh, a bit of a, a success. And so in 1999, uh, we were able to... Uh, leave Moscow, uh, moved to California, and I went full-time into IEW. And that's when things started to really explode. Uh, and uh, that's when you know, my four youngest children were really um, school age in the, in the strongest sense of the word. So um, then, of course, that was um, right around, you know, I got started right around the same time classical conversations got started. And then our paths intersected, I think, around 2003. They started using our materials for the Essentials Program. And, uh, of course, classical education is probably the most rapidly growing area uh, of homeschooling today. It certainly is. No, that's, um, that's a remarkable story. It, during your lifetime, though, you've seen homeschooling grow um, tremendously, you know, whether it be from the beginning of the 1990s up until... Um, the year now, 2019, what excites you the most about that growth, um, just the enormous growth that homeschooling has experienced across um, the world and especially the United States? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, there are a lot of things that excite me, a couple of things that worry me. Um, one thing that is a huge change, of course, is the availability of awesome curriculum and opportunities for homeschoolers that really didn't exist in those early days. I've got some friends, of course, kids all grown now, but they were 
homeschooling in the in the early 80s and there was just basically nothing i mean you could kind of beg a becca to sell you books but even they were you know no these are school books you're you're you don't have a school but we we have a homeschool that's a school well okay uh so there there was in nowhere near uh the type of curricular opportunities now it's a it's a huge market there's many magazines and you go to a big convention like in since the great homeschool convention in Cincinnati which is the largest in the world i guess you'd say largest in the country here um and there's you know 400 booths of you name it anything you can think of in terms of curriculum is now created and uh, available to homeschoolers so that's the biggest i would say the biggest difference from a you know from a i want to do this point of view uh, the second would be the astonishing growth of homeschool co-ops and hybrid school opportunities and programs like uh, classical conversations and scole. Um, and uh, this means that no one has to really be homeschooling alone. In the early days, um, you, know, you might have to drive half an hour just to find one other homeschooling family. And besides your, you know, Kind of busy homeschooling so it was kind of insular in a way whereas now uh, the social opportunities the opportunity for kids to have um, uh, teachers teach specialty subjects to uh, groups of homeschooled children together uh, this has is a huge blessing because now no one has to feel you know alone i have to do this all myself no it's much more of a community type of experience and honestly you know my homeschool kids were every bit as busy if not busier uh going places and doing things with other kids than a lot of the students who went to school that i knew so um you know that would be the second area the third area kind of uh, you know a tangent off that would be a much broader diversity in um, types of families that homeschool um uh, in the early days uh, pretty much everyone was kind of on the very fundamentalist protestant christian we do this you know from for ethical moral reasons the bible is at the core uh, of our curriculum and we only want to associate with very like-minded people that was kind of a you know a, a default attitude but now we see people coming in to homeschooling um for various reasons not necessarily because they want the the you know religious education to be first and foremost but they they look at homeschooling as uh a way to give a superior education to their children than the schools offer a lot of people come in because they have children in special needs or special circumstances and they don't find a school that can meet those special needs uh, adequately or as well as they could at home uh, a lot of people now have, um, you know, business and work opportunities that allow them flexible schedules and work from home, telecommute, home business. This has all grown very significantly. And so uh, that makes homeschooling possible uh, for people uh, maybe who, who have both, both parents in the family are working or single parent who wants to work from home and homeschool. This is all possible. and. Uh, and so just the diversity of people that we meet um, 
you know, it that has some challenges, but I think overall it's great because it's extended the conversation and we're all richer for that. Are there certain experiences that your children have um, encountered and certain opportunities that they have encountered um, that you think would have only been possible because they were homeschooled? Oh, sure. Um, one thing I mentioned was uh, speech and debate. So um, uh, four of the seven children um, were fairly active in the homeschool speech and debate opportunities, um, both when we were living in California and now uh, where we are in Oklahoma. And that, of course, uh, takes a lot of time. It's a lot of prep work. It's travel. It's uh, tournaments many times a year. Um, you you couldn't really attend a five day a week school and go to these you know four day debate tournaments where you have to you know drive all day on Wednesday and compete all day Thursday Friday uh, stick around for the final rounds on Saturday drive home Sunday and then recover on Monday that wouldn't be very convenient if you had to attend a you know traditional five day a week program and I would say you know the speech and debate uh, opportunity is one of the absolute best possible social environments. Uh, the kids are dressed to the T's. They are well prepared. They are articulate, intelligent, polite, winsome. Kind of all the things you see in the in the in the successful debaters and winners in, in speech. The things you would like to see in your own children. So that certainly is one uh, definite advantage. In my case, because I have always uh, been self-employed and always had a uh, home business of one sort or another, sometimes more than one at a time, um, my children all had an opportunity to grow up working in a home business. And uh, I would say not only did that uh, kind of plant in them an entrepreneurial mindset, which I'm sure you, Noah, appreciate. Yes. Uh, seeing success and, and being a teenage podcaster with a great following. Uh, but also just skills, organizational skills, you know, accounting skills, um, sales skills, travel, logistics skills. Uh, the lessons are probably too numerous to enumerate here. Um, but if I think back, you know, those times when the kids were, you know, working in the office with me or uh, traveling and doing a conference, uh, working the, our booth with me and all of the opportunity that provided, of course, you know, without homeschooling, I don't think they would have had the freedom or time to do that. Many people know you as the founder of the Institute for Excellence in writing a program designed to help children listen, speak, read, write, and think. Um, earlier, you talked a little bit about the origin story behind IEW, but what really inspired you to start that program? Well, I will be quite honest. Um, I was not making enough money as a violin teacher, and uh, I was teaching violin and uh, kinder music, which is a uh, group instruction for young children, music instruction. And that was all I really had professional training in. I do not have uh, a degree in, in English nor in elementary or education of any sort. I'm, you know, my only qualification is I went to Japan and studied with Suzuki for three years and I was a Suzuki violin teacher and pretty good at it. But it's very difficult when you're selling your, you know, your, your time, uh, you're trading your time for income and you at a certain point run out of time. You, you can only work 
as many hours as you can and keeping your wife home, homeschooling your children. Uh, you know, I always was kind of coming up short on the music teacher income level. Uh, so I had various business ideas and um, I happened to have the background in this writing program that I acquired by traveling to Canada one year and uh, taking a course called the Blended Soundtech Program of Learning in Northern Alberta, where I met Dr. Webster and learned his writing program. Uh, so I came back and I taught it to kids. And I taught it to my kids. But then um, I wanted to create um, a seminar business because I thought now there you can leverage yourself, right? You can spend, you know, one day talking to people, but you can talk to two people. You can talk to a hundred people. If you can talk to a hundred people who all pay a hundred dollars, that's a whole lot better deal, you know? So uh, I was investigating uh, this whole concept of a seminar business. And uh, one of the schools uh, that I had worked for in Montana, a uh, very part-time, they said, oh, would you come back and, and do a little workshop for our teachers on that writing program that you learned? And I said, sure. And my mom lived there. So I went back and, uh, and uh, there were a few homeschoolers that came. And this was in uh, 1994. The very first seminar I did was November 1994. So we're very close here to the 25th anniversary. And, um, and they said, oh, this is great. You should teach this to homeschoolers all over the place. And I thought, well, okay, I've been looking for something like that. So I made a little flyer and I printed it up and I sent it in the box to the homeschool group leader in Seattle. I said, said here's stamps would you put labels and mail this out and uh i uh i got what was it 20 people to pay 40 dollars to listen to me talk for a whole day and they all loved it and i thought wow 800 bucks in a day that's more than i make in a whole week teaching violin this has potential so really a case of, of need but you know from a more providential view i believe that you know the experiences i had and uh, kind of eclectic education uh, that I acquired, and then this opportunity all converged, you know, by the hand of providence, so that I could kind of discover my life mission. And uh, again, in 1999, uh, we, we left, moved to California, and I went full-time. So I've been doing this full-time uh, for almost 20 years. And uh, indeed, it, it feels like what I was prepared for and what I am meant to be doing. So I'm very grateful. That's an amazing story. I think that's um, that's excellent. Based on your many years of experience, um, and this is indeed a very big question, but what do you believe is the key to becoming an excellent writer and beyond writing a superb communicator? That is a great question, and I have been answering that question for some time, so uh, I will be happy to do so. And it may not be what you would expect or what your listeners would expect, but um, I, for a long time, was attending very, very much to how do you get reliably correct and appropriately sophisticated language spoken and written out of a, a student's brain and onto paper or into the air? How do you get the language out of their mind? And at a certain point, I had kind of a revelation which was you won't get something out that isn't in there to begin with. Uh, this is true in everything, of course, right? You don't get Chinese out of a brain that doesn't have Chinese. You don't get uh, physics out of a brain that doesn't have physics. Uh, you don't get reliably correct and sophisticated English out unless there's a good database of language in. 
So I began to attend more to the idea of how to cultivate good language skills first by the, the twin uh, methods of number one, reading out loud in huge quantities to children, and number two, restoring the discipline of memorization in the lives of children. Uh, these two things, unfortunately, in our modern, quote, progressive era of education have kind of gone by the wayside. Um, teachers have little time to read out loud to children. Uh, they believe that if children read on their own, uh, they will somehow gain greater benefit uh, than if someone reads to them. However, when reading to them is so marginalized that neither teachers nor parents have time to do it, then this actually affects their comprehension level and makes it harder and harder for them to read increasingly challenging material on their own. So we need to see a restoration of the culture of reading out loud to children. So teachers, you know, they've got these standards, they've got curriculum, they're very busy, uh, time is limited, there's a big focus on STEM. It's hard to squeeze 20 minutes out of a day just to read a good book to a group of 10-year-olds. Parents also are fighting. Uh, you know, they're on career tracks, they're busy, or they're not on career tracks, and they're working lower-paying jobs, and they have to work a lot, sometimes, you know, a job and a half, and everyone comes home, they're very exhausted, and so they seek release from their exhaustion and frustration through electronic entertainment and games and social media and things. Uh, and this is going lower and lower into children's lives and affecting, uh, you know, the whole family so that parents don't have the idea of reading to children. And then if they get the idea, they, they may find that children are resistant because uh, the children are now kind of uh, addicted, if you will, to screens. Uh, so I would view uh, the number one solution to the comprehension and literacy crisis that we see in the modern English speaking countries today as restoring uh, reading out loud to children at home. Yeah. I'm just curious, you uh, were homeschooled, you are a big uh, history guy, um, you must love reading, and uh, I'm just curious, did your parents read out loud to you when you were younger? Yes, absolutely. Um, every day, certainly at the beginning of the day, in fact, that was my sister and I's um, because she's homeschooled too. I have one sister a few years younger than me. Um, that was the first activity we would do every day is um, reading out loud. We would read um, all sorts of different stories, you know, classic books, obviously, um, like, you know, The Pilgrim's Progress and everything like that. But also, you know, Last of the Mohicans, um, just to name a few, but also scripture. So um, I very much enjoyed that. And it was really a nice way to start the day because I agree with you. I think children do enjoy being told stories and being read to out loud. Yeah. So that's one of my big soapboxes. I travel around the country and, and the world uh, trying to help restore that culture because it is lost in so many places. Uh, the other thing that's died out uh, in, in a lot of schools and kind of the modern education mindset is memorization of language. Um, you know, 150 years ago, all children were responsible for huge chunks of memorized scripture, memorized poetry, uh, memorized excerpts from famous speeches. They would uh, build their vocabulary, their inherent grammar and syntax. They would furnish their mind with uh, poetic devices and even seminal ideas. Uh, 
by memorization. And unfortunately, in the early 1900s, the influence of John Dewey um, came into the schools of education that were being established. And uh, Dewey's attitude was that rote learning, i.e. memorizing something and being able to recite it, um, was at best a waste of time and at worst harmful, that education should be uh, entirely about exploration and creativity and experience, you know, which is true. We need exploration, creativity, and experience. But in throwing out the proverbial baby with the bathwater here, um, the result is that now, um, you know, many decades later, um, it is rare to go into a public school and discover a teacher uh, who's even heard the idea that uh, memorizing poems would be good for the language skills of her fourth graders, uh, let alone would feel uh, free to do that. She would not have learned it in a school of education. She may not be old enough to have done it herself when she was school age. And so our memories are actually um, becoming less apt as we exercise them less and less. And this phenomena has even gone further than I think any of us would have expected, you know, 15 years ago into the argument that children shouldn't really have to memorize anything like names, dates, facts. I've even heard people argue against children being required to memorize multiplication tables. Uh, why? Because they've got, you know, they've got phones, computers, devices, calculators. Why store that stuff in your brain when you just can have access to it easily? Um, that's a fascinating topic we could get into more. Uh, but from the perspective of a writing teacher, I will tell you that the kids, you know, you're always going to have a spectrum. I meet kids on one end, high talented, natural, big vocabulary, love writing. And on the low end, kind of, you know, just don't have the word, just don't know what to say, just can't get the ideas. The number one predictor of good writers in adulthood is having been read to out loud and having memorized poetry and or scripture in their youth. So that's kind of my focus. Now, you know, what I do is I have a program that helps people on the output. Okay. Now here's how you get that stuff out of your brain and here's how you organize it and here's how you polish it up and present it to the world. Uh, but it, like I said, if it isn't in there to begin with, it's not going to come out, and it doesn't matter how good of a system you have. So, um, and I, you being part of classical conversations, you probably have a good amount of experience with uh, memorizing uh, poetry, scripture, uh, various things, eh? Yes. Oh, undoubtedly. I'm always uh, joking around with my uh, sister and my mom and my dad, um, just because I always loved memorizing the history sentences. Obviously. History is very much my jam, but you know, it's just like I'll be in Barnes and Noble or a bookstore and I'll see this history book that'll mention, you know, Commodore Matthew Perry. And I'm going, yeah, circa 1853, Commodore Matthew Perry of the US restored trade, allowing the Meiji to modernize Japan. So it's just little things like that, little light bulbs flickering in my, my mind for memorizing all of those history sentences and, and other things as well. I like how you put that light bulbs flickering in your mind. Um, one of the um, problems that I see with this attitude that, you know, why should you memorize 
that relatively obscure date and name of Commodore Matthew Perry in 18, what is it, 1853, you said? Yeah, that's right. You know, why? What, what's the value? You could just ask your phone. But yes, it's true. If I don't know the dates of the Civil War, I could say, Siri, when was the Civil War? And Siri would tell me exactly the day that it began and the day that it ended. But here's the problem. If you keep knowing and, and remembering less and less and less, you would reach a point where you don't even know there was a Civil War. And so you couldn't even ask the question. And so uh, I like to try to counter that argument that you don't need to memorize things by a reduction ad absurdum. Well, what happens when you don't know enough to ask your phone? Then where are we there, you know, as individuals and as a society? That's yes, that's certainly an interesting concept. And this segues nicely into my next question, which is, you know, we talk about reading out loud and we talk about, um, you know, immersing children in memorization and reading, which I think is very important and wonderful. But um, we certainly do live in a different time in 2019 in that technology is so widespread and so accessible. I mean, I don't think I've seen, you know, I'll just be going through the mall or walking down the street and I've seen, you know, five and six-year-olds in the stroller who have an iPad in front of their faces. Um, but I think it can be very much an epidemic as well. Um, so I'm curious, you know, in your opinion, how can technology be used um, in a positive sense in a homeschool and sort of what things should would you encourage parents to be cautious of? Mm, yeah. Well, um, certainly there is a there is a drive to put screens in in front of children as they get younger and younger. Um, it's just about the most perfect babysitter you could ever have. Um, costs very little. Uh, is always there when you need it, and pretty much the kids perfectly obey it sit still, be quiet, watch me. Uh, so the temptation is huge. But uh, unfortunately, um, there's so much research to indicate that uh, you know there are physiological and neurological effects of screens that are amplified many times over with young children. So I would recommend all parents, homeschooling or not, um, you know, do some of the research on that. It's readily available. You know, the pediatricians and the optometrists and the psychologists all have chimed in saying uh, it is very important to limit screen time with children. Um, in terms of basic skills, uh, reading, writing, and arithmetic, right? These are um, skills which are probably best developed with a minimal amount of technology um, because they are basic human skills. Um, I am not at all convinced that there are um, computer programs or uh, iPad apps that will teach reading any better than some phonics flashcards and some paper readers um, that have been around for hundreds of years. In fact, there is some evidence to indicate, at least in schools, the more screens you have, the lower level of reading skills. Um, there's a book, uh, it's a little bit dated now, but it, it was powerful when it was written in the early uh, 2000s, uh, 
uh, and it's probably even more true today, it's called the flickering mind, false promise of technology in the classroom. Uh, Todd Oppenheimer, I believe. And uh, he found a, an inverse correlation in between basic skills and technology. The highest basic skill schools he visited, kids who had the best reading, writing, and math skills, were zero tech schools like Waldorf or Montessori. Uh, so it's interesting. Uh, we believe that the technology will make it easier to teach reading and math, but I am highly doubting that if you were to compile all the evidence, that's true for most people. Now, there's always exceptions. There are always children who, you know, have some type of, um, you know, learning disability or impediment or challenge, uh, extreme dyslexia, dyslexia or dysgraphia or, or autism spectrum. You know, there are reasons as to why adaptive technology can be justified. But I think in most cases, uh, you're better off starting with a six-year-old with paper books and pen on paper and learn to do math without a calculator. Uh, you get better foundational skills. Uh, as children get older, of course, um, you do want to allow them to do research uh, and learn through access to the almost infinite source of information. Um, but you also want them to use real books and get information from real books. So in my writing classes, for example, um, you know, I, I always say, okay, you're going to write an essay, you want to research this. So um, yes, you can find some websites. Hopefully you've got an encyclopedia you can use, but go to the library. You have to have at least one real book in your selection of sources here to do this uh, research or essay. Uh, and I see that, I believe that's a good thing. Uh, and yet, increasingly, you meet kids who have never been to a real library. Um, they don't even think of looking for information in books. Uh, and of course, you, know, you could go down a real rabbit trail with uh, the problems of accuracy of information you find uh, on the internet. But um, overall, I think the parents will need to have, you know, Limits on entertainment screen time, very strict. Um, limits on portable devices and where they can be used in a home. Um, minimize uh, the use of technology to teach basic skills. And then assist children in learning to use technology when they reach the, the higher levels uh, you know, of math, where they need, say, you know, a calculator that will do trigonometric functions or graphing. Um, learning how to format papers properly and master the intricacies of Microsoft Word and, of course, navigating the online world and learning to use the databases, you know, JSTOR, LexisNexis, those things where a lot of the world's wealth of research is now stored electronically. So, I don't know, did that answer your question? <laughs> yes. No, it did. That's a, that's a fascinating insight. Uh, the last question I will ask you today Mr. Pudua, is if you could leave homeschool students that may be listening, uh, such as myself, with words of advice pertaining to education, um, the future of their education, and, and maybe even beyond education, what would you say to them? Well, um, I, I love talking to teenagers. Uh, at one time, I was afraid of them, and then I had some, and I realized they weren't so scary, and now they're 
pretty much my favorite group of students. Um, a, a few things. One is most of growing up is about getting bossed around. You know, you're a little kid and people say, go here, don't go there, do this, don't do that, read this, don't read this, do this, right? And you hit a certain age, you know, for some kids that's as young as 12 or 13, you know, certainly by 16 or 17, you're just tired of it. You, you just, you don't want to be bossed around anymore. And so I always say, you know, if you're tired of people telling you what to do, then the secret is this. Tell yourself what to do. Boss yourself around. The only reason people tell you what to do is because you don't look like you know. If you take charge of your own education and you say, aha, this is how I'm going to use my time. This is where I'm going to put my energy. This is what I want to learn. And I'm going to pursue this with zeal. Then, man, people will get out of your way. So it's a decision. I think everyone has to make at some point in their life. Sometimes I've seen kids do this at a young age, 13, 14, say, I'm going to be in charge of my education and I'm going to then use parents, teachers, resources, technology to, to teach myself, to learn. Uh, and other times people don't make this until many years after they've been out of college, if at all, uh, because they got in this rut of just being told what to do and doing it to play the game and win the game called being in school. Uh, so that would be my first bit of advice is you will experience greater freedom the minute you take responsibility for your own education. And, you know, an interesting, um, you, you probably studied some Latin along the way, I would guess. Yes. Uh, one of the words I love is the word studio, studiorum, which uh, in English becomes our word study. However, the original Latin meaning, the first meaning is zeal zeal you know uh how do you study well well you have zeal for it uh, so work on that one uh, young people the second thing i say to young people especially the kind i meet in homeschool workshops and homeschool conventions is this um very shortly you're going to move into the world of, of work and possibly higher education and that's wonderful but keep in mind these two things don't work for money it's okay to get paid, but that's not the reason to work. The reason to work is to work for an individual who can mentor you and develop, help you develop your character, virtue, skills. Um, another reason to work would be to be a part of an organization that can train you and help you develop your skills uh, that may or may not be immediately useful, but may be part of a greater plan for your life. The third reason to work is to work for uh, a, a purpose that actually does make the world a better place. But if you ever find yourself, you know, driving to the burger place so you can sell burgers, so you can get a paycheck, so you can pay for the car insurance and the gas to drive to the burger place, you're in the wrong loop there. And, and other people can do that. You are more important. You need to prepare yourself for the future and thinking about work correctly is part of it in my view. Um, I know that as a teenager, I, I can remember almost nothing of what happened at high school, but I remember every job I had, every boss I had, what I learned, the mentoring, the trouble I got into, how I got out of that trouble, uh, the skills that, that I gained. I mean, life education started for me when school ended at three o'clock or whatever. 
um, being homeschooled, you've got, you know, you don't, you don't have that, that big blankness of, you know, sitting in classrooms, mind numbingly bored. Uh, you can integrate uh, learning and, and working as part of that. The second thing I would say, if and when you go off to an institution of higher education, don't go there just to play the game, get a good transcript and have a piece of paper to hang on your wall. It's okay to do that. It's okay to play the game and get a good transcript and get a piece of paper to hang on your wall. But that's not the reason to be there. The reason to be there is to grow in wisdom and virtue, to uh, you know, build your character. And, and how do you do that, really? Well, I would argue there's two things that affect your intellect most directly. One is the things you read in here, and the other is the people you spend time with. Uh, another way to think about this is it's, it's always people that affect you and your thinking most directly. And there's two kinds of people, living people and dead people, right? Uh, the dead people wrote the books that, that you need to read. You expand your mind by delving into a, a classic. And you had the huge advantage of your parents knowing that either consciously or instinctively and reading to you these good and great books from a young age so you could fall in love with it. Not everybody has that advantage. Uh, so when you go off to school, be very careful about the people and the books that you spend time with. Try to find friends who are better people than you are. Try to find professors who are real mentors that will help you lead you to um, deeper thinking and truth. And, and read the good books that get you in direct contact with the great mind that wrote them. And if you ever find yourself sitting in a stupid class, listening to a professor spout his ideology from the platform, trying to, you know, brainwash you or whatever, you don't just leave. Just don't, don't waste your time there. Your time is the most valuable thing you've got. So those are my little bits of advice for teenagers such as yourself. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Pudua, for taking the time to come on the show and speak with me today. It's really been an honor for me, and it's been a privilege having you on the show. Well, it has been enjoyable for me as well, and I will look forward to seeing uh, how you grow this next podcast endeavor and some of the other great people you have on to speak with. Thank you so much. Join us right here again next week for another episode. Thank you for listening to The Homeschool Enthusiast. Subscribe for free wherever you listen to podcasts. Twice a week, we bring you a message of hope and freedom, remembering that every student has unlimited God-given potential and the best learning happens outside a classroom. 